0: You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be.
1: From somewhere in Santa Clarita County, this is Obscure Season 2 frankenstein i am your host your friend your ear lover your literary mansplainer in chief and georgianologist michael ian black i am in santa clarita county uh, at a hyatt in a bubble that's right i'm in a bubble in official showbiz bubble look i hope we have bubble sound effects to put in here as i describe (coughs) what i'm doing I'm shooting one of my favorite television shows, Reno 911. They're coming back for their, I don't know how many, they've done like 50 seasons. This It's on Quibi now. You've never you've never seen Quibi. Nobody has. But they're still making Reno, so I'm happy. I'm going to shoot several episodes over the course of the next two weeks. And for the next two weeks, I'm going to be in a Reno bubble. Bloop, bloop. And, you know, so far so good. I got here yesterday, been hanging out at the Hyatt. I'm not allowed to really leave the Hyatt. I'm not really allowed to do anything other than be at the Hyatt when I'm not working. And I'm not going to be working that much. So it's going to be a lot of downtime for me here in Valencia. But that's okay. I mean, I have things to do. I have so much to do, you guys. I have chapters of Frankenstein to read. And you know, we got a long way to go in this book. I, I generally only record about once a week because I like to stay kind of current with what's going on in the world just in case something from the world should intrude on my own commentary of the book. For example, what I'm hearing right now through my glass sliding doors that lead out to the little balcony that I have here at the Hyatt are the sounds of children frolicking, cavorting, and playing in the swimming pool. Uh, I guess you can you can still have sure. swimming pools during a pandemic. I don't know. I mean, maybe they're probably related, these kids. Um, but it puts me in mind of the two young charges in our literary journey right now, young Victor Frankenstein, his more than sister, Elizabeth. We met Elizabeth last weekend. She was the fallen angel of a Milanese um, or, or a, a, an Austrian, I don't know, he, she... She, yeah, like a Milanese nobleman who was put into the care of this peasant family. And then Frankenstein's mom, Caroline Beaufort, of the South Carolina Beauforts, came along and scooped her up. And I don't know, I don't even know if she like paid for her. You know, I'm not saying like you should buy children. But what I am saying is her foster parents basically gave her up to this lady because they had too many kids and they couldn't afford her. And Caroline Beaufort's like, let me take this little blonde baby off your hands. And they were like, sure. But you know, the least she could have done is throw a couple bucks their way. You know what I mean? So they could make us some pasta. So they could make us some linguine a la vodka. But now Elizabeth and Victor are together. Everybody loves Elizabeth. She's this radiant blonde, blue-eyed child. And all we know about her, really, we learned um, right at the end of chapter one, is that she gon' die. Oh, Elizabeth gon' die. Libby, you gon' die. You know, it's a horror. It's a horror. And that is what it's all about, right? Horror and beauty. Beauty and horror. And, you know, there are some parallels and differences here between Frankenstein and Jude the Obscure, we can observe. I mentioned one of them last time, which is that Frankenstein grew up in the lap of luxury, as did Walton, our humble narrator and court stenographer, who grew up uh, surrounded by wealth. And we're contrasting that with Jude, who grew up like the Italian peasants in penury and misery, Jude grew up to be a stonemason and scholar and although his life was tragic he didn't attempt to sculpt from mud a creature right he he came he came everything that he came by in this world he came by honestly and then he died Frankenstein who grew up in the lap of luxury it seems like his reach is going to exceed his grasp and he is going to commit some evil doings now is there a connection between growing up Uh, in sort of stable circumstances and thinking you're better than all that, right? Giving yourself these dreams that can't help but end up turning against you and decimating you and others. I mean, Jude was, his reach was exceeding his grasp too, but well, there's no real but. I mean, that's what, this, that, that's what the book was about, in a sense. Like, uh, the class system keeping him in his place. Everything about the wretched British class system keeping him down. Frankenstein doesn't have those boundaries. He was born into the upper crust. He can do whatever he wants. He can go out and he can become a syndic if he wants. But he's going to turn his attention to science and uh, practically the supernatural. Anyway we're caught up. We're in the bubble. Bloop. Let's continue. Chapter two. And again, this is Frankenstein narrating Walton transcribing. We were brought up together. There was not quite a year difference in our ages. I need not say that we were strangers to any species of disunion or dispute. So he's saying we never argued. Bullshit. Harmony was the soul of our companionship, and the diversity and contrast that subsisted in our characters drew us nearer together. Elizabeth was of a calmer and more concentrated disposition, but with all my ardor, I was capable of a more intense application, and was more deeply smitten with the thirst for knowledge." She busied herself with following the aerial creations of the poets and in the majestic and wondrous scenes which surrounded our Swiss home, the sublime shapes of the mountains, the changes of the seasons, tempest and calm, the silence of winter, and the life and turbulence of our alpine summers. She found ample scope for admiration and delight. While my companion contemplated with a serious and satisfied spirit the magnificent appearances of things, I delighted in investigating their causes. The world was to me a secret which I desired to divine, curiosity, earnest research to learn the hidden laws of nature, gladness akin to rapture as they were unfolded to me are among the earliest sensations I can remember. Well, they're, you know, they're um, sort of the yin and yang of the human spirit, aren't they? One is more satisfied in the, what How does he call it? The aerial creations of the poets. And one is down there in the dirt, mucking around, trying to figure out how Babies get made and how leaves grow on the trees and how animals do what animals do, or whatever. I don't know. He's more interested in the in the in the why. She's more interested in the what, right? Just observing and taking inspiration and delight in nature. He wants to learn what makes nature nature. So we're seeing his character, the ardor as he describes it. We're seeing how excited it all gets him. You know, little scientist playing with his chemistry set, you know, making things go boom. And yeah, you know, you might burn your your eyebrows off one or two times. What's the harm? What's the harm? Hey, Shakespeare, what's the harm? There's no harm, right? I mean, this is great. This is, this. is He is an enlightened man, a man of what will come to be the Enlightenment. Or maybe it is already the Enlightenment. I don't know. I don't know. When was the Enlightenment? I think it started in the 1600s. I don't know. Voltaire, Rousseau, all of that. I'm in way over my head when I start talking about the Enlightenment. I don't know when it was. I'm looking it up on my research machine. The Enlightenment, okay, 1715, ended in 1789, an intellectual and philosophical movement movement that dominated the world of ideas during the 17th and 18th centuries. So he is a creature of the Enlightenment, right? He wants to understand science. He wants uh, individualism, reason, here's an interesting thing. Enlightenment thinking helps give rise to deism, which is the belief that God exists but does not interact supernaturally with the universe. We've heard about deism all our lives as Americans because, um, you know, uh, supposedly all our founding fathers were deists, etc., etc., etc. But why is that relevant? I will tell you. You already know. Frankenstein, as a child of the Enlightenment, as in fact, you know, growing up deep, right in the heart of it. Let's ascribe to him the attributes of the Enlightenment. Let us say that Frankenstein is a Christian boy. He believes in God, right, but does not believe that God interacts supernaturally with the universe, and therefore it is up to all of us as people to create miracles where we see the need. It is up to us as people to replace God in the daily interactions between the heavens and earth. We are the ones responsible for making that which we seek into being. That just, that just makes sense. Like if God is there, right? But is just kind of like doing his own thing. You know, like God's up in the attic like, listening to Pink Floyd and you're like, God, come down you don't take out the garbage. And God isn't doing it. Well, shit, like you've still got to take out the garbage. The garbage still has to be taken out. So, Walton is a child of the Enlightenment, right? He's trying to figure out magnetism and some shit. He's trying to find a passage, you know, to Asia. He's going to make a million bucks. Frankenstein, clearly also a child of the Enlightenment. He's trying to understand the physical world, presumably for the betterment of mankind. You know, these are noble ideals. These are enlightened ideals ideals. You know, what's he gonna do? He's gonna use reason, he's gonna use individual individualism, but I like saying individualum. That's also very good. He's gonna do what he does. And then you have Elizabeth, who is a more classical creature, almost like um, you know, angelic, yeah, but I, like I'm thinking like she's sort of like like a like a, a muse or a fairy or I, I you know some sort of like platonic ideal of a girl, right, just sort of skipping through the alpines, you know, and 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 humming little songs with her little milk pail and just being adorable any way you look at her. Mary, who's that adorable girl skipping gaily through the alpines? Why, that's young Elizabeth Frankenstein. Well, I love her. She's adorable. Look at her. Look at the precious creature. Who's that boy with her? The dark boy, the brooding boy. Oh, that's her brother Victor they're more than sister and brother they're cousins they're familiar with each other and we love them both but well, the victor has a little taint about him doesn't he yes he's got a little bit of something that we can't quite put our fingers on but we know it's no good well i hope i hope nobody dies and turns and turns that, that darkness into something tragic i agree chapter 2 we uh, We'll uh, 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 skip that On the birth of a second son, my junior, by seven years, my parents gave up entirely their wandering life and fixed themselves in their native country. We possessed a house in Geneva and a campagna on Belle Reve. And there's a a footnote there, but I think it just means a country house. Uh, The eastern shore of the lake at the distance of rather more than a league from the city. We resided principally in the latter, and the lives of my parents were passed in considerable seclusion. It was my temper to avoid a crowd and to attach myself fervently to a few. I was indifferent, therefore, to my schoolfellows in general, but I united myself in the bonds of the closest friendship to one among them. Henry Clerval was the son of a merchant of Geneva. He was a boy of singular talent and fancy. He loved enterprise, hardship, and even danger for its own sake. He was deeply read in books of chivalry and romance. He composed heroic songs and began to write many a tale of enchantment and knightly adventure. Nightly meaning um, like knights, not like day and night, you know, steeds, guys on steeds with chainmail. He tried to make us act plays and to enter into masquerades in which the characters were drawn from the heroes of Roncesvalles. As a footnote, I got to look it up. I don't really, you know, it's going to be some nightly thing. Uh, Roncesvalles. All right, I'm getting there, getting there, getting there. Jeez, sorry. When Charlemagne was returning from his expedition against Pamplona and Saragossa, The army fell into a natural trap at Roncesval. I'm probably pronouncing it right, but I don't care. In the Pyrenees and Roland, who commanded the rearguard, was slain with all the flower of the Frankish chivalry. Okay, so it's just like a battle site. Who cares? So there, of the round table of King Arthur and the chivalrous train who shed their blood to redeem this holy sepulchre from the hands of the infidels. Uh, I think that means the, uh, the whatchamacallits, the, uh, the Crusades. So, you know, he was, he, so Henry is this little dude who's, like, into, like, heroism and chivalry and, like, you know, going, uh, hiking the Appalachian Trail like me, and he, he, he composes heroic songs, and he writes plays, and, you know, he's, he's a little Lord Fauntleroy. We love him. We love Henry. No human being could have passed a happier childhood than myself. My parents were possessed by the very spirit of kindness and indulgence. We felt that they were not the tyrants to rule our lot according to their caprice, but the agents and creators of all the many delights which we enjoyed. When I mingled with other families, I distinctly discerned how peculiarly fortunate my lot was, and gratitude assisted the development of filial love. I mean, I'm bored. I'm so bored this is the problem with happy childhoods. They are so fucking boring, right? Like, who cares about your happy childhood? I don't want to hear about your happiness. That is not of interest to me. If you tell me a story that begins with, let me tell you about all the great things in my life, after about five minutes, I'm tuning out. It's why I don't like, you know, Instagram. You go on Instagram, and all you're seeing is people being happy, and like, here's us in our vacation, and here's my legs and my feet on the beach. Like, who cares? Like, there's no no conflict there. There's nothing interesting. It's not good storytelling. Look, I understand it. Mary's setting him up for the fall, right? I mean, this is the whole thing. I understand that there is uh, Paradise Lost, and that there's allusions to Milton all over the place. But I've never read Paradise Lost. I was assigned it in like high school. I couldn't be bothered. I didn't. I couldn't make heads or tails of it. Then again, I didn't really try. Did I try to read Paradise Lost? Not really. But I understand that there are allusions to paradise lost. We're in paradise right now, okay? We get it. Like, you could have just said, Mary, you just could have said, this is paradise, and it's going to be lost. Like, I had this friend, I had this sister, uh, it was fantastic, and then everybody died. Like, okay, we got the paradise, then just get me to the lost. That's what I want to know about. You know, I could take one chapter of paradise, and we got it. We got one chapter of paradise, but Jesus, boring. So he's happy. Okay, great. My temper was sometimes violent, good, good, that's what I want, I want violence, my passions vehement, great, but by some law in my temperature they were turned not towards childish pursuits, but to an eager desire to learn, and not to learn all things indiscriminately. I confess that neither the structure of languages, nor the code of governments, nor the politics of various states possessed attractions for me. It was the secrets of heaven and earth that I desired to learn, and whether it was the outward substance of things, or the inner spirit of nature and the mysterious soul of man that occupied me, still... My enquiries were directed to the metaphysical, or in its highest sense, the physical secrets of the world. All right, I feel like we already know this, don't we? I mean, maybe we wouldn't know it if, if, like, we didn't know the story of Frankenstein already. Like, I, I guess I have to remember, like, and I don't really know the story of Frankenstein other than you know the sort of broad strokes. But I guess I have to remember this. I'm coming into this as a general reader would in 1818, having never heard of Frankenstein. Frankenstein? Who's that? Who's this Frankenstein you keep talking about? We wouldn't know. So I might be, you know, I'm, I'm coming into this with some foreknowledge that maybe makes this a little more boring than it would be to the general reader. I will say this, though. Speaking of Paradise Lost, Dirk Diggler, if you've ever seen Boogie Nights, God, the whole movie for me is about Paradise Gained. Like, I love watching Dirk Diggler's rise through the 70s porn industry, recording bad love ballads, rock ballads, doing coke, uh, you know, cavorting with various girls. I love Burt Reynolds. I love Philip Seymour Hoffman, you know, being whiny. I love the whole thing. And then, when it starts to go south, when Paradise does, in fact, inevitably get lost, like, somehow... When that should be the part that really gets me going, somehow I like that less. Like, I just wanted to see Dirt Diggler's rise, pun intended, continue indefinitely. I could have seen four hours of that. And basically, if you watch Boogie Nights, it is four hours, but I could have watched four hours of just Paradise Gained and been totally satisfied. Maybe because he came from nothing and had to rise, but with Frankenstein, he came from everything and then just wallowed in his own good fortune. And it's boring. And on that note, I think we should take a little break.
0: Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you.
1: Back to the book. Meanwhile, Clerval occupied himself, so to speak, with the moral relations of things. The busy stage of life, the virtues of heroes, and the actions of men were his theme, and his hope and his dream was to become one among those whose names are recorded in story. As the gallant and adventurous, ben- I, mean, I know it's gallant, but it's just fun to say gallant. As the gallant and adventurous benefactors of our species, the saintly soul of Elizabeth shone like a shrine dedicated lamp in our peaceful home. Her sympathy was ours, her smile, her soft voice, the sweet glance of her celestial eyes were ever there to bless and animate us. She was the living spirit of love to soften and attract. I might have become sullen in my study, rough through the ardor of my nature, but that she was there to subdue me to a semblance of her own gentleness and clerval could aught ill entrench on the noble spirit of Clerval. Wait, what? And Clerval could aught ill entrench on the noble spirit of Clerval. So so nothing could entrench on his noble spirit. Got it. Yet he might not have been so perfectly humane, so thoughtful in his generosity, so full of kindness and tenderness amidst his passion for adventurous exploit, had she not unfolded to him the real loveliness of beneficence and made the doing good the end and aim of his soaring ambition. So here we have, and look, I don't know if there are parallels or not, but let's just imagine for a moment that there are. You've got a trio, right? Uh, Two guys and a gal. Um, And it is reminiscent, perhaps of the trio with which we started this adventure, this little journey. The trio in that little house in Geneva by the crackling fire, entertaining each other with ghost stories. Shelley, Byron, and the other Shelley. And you can put whichever Shelley you want first or second. So you have a similar grouping right? They're all roughly the same age. They seem to have different components of spirit. They are all complementary to each other. And here they are, hanging out, playing together, growing up together, um, being mutually reinforcing in their passions and interests. Is there a parallel? Maybe. Is Clerval perhaps some version of Byron? Perhaps. I don't know. I mean, it's fun to think about. I don't know anything about Byron, I know other than he's a lord, Lord Byron. What makes somebody a lord? Is it just a title that you're granted, and then it just sort of gets handed down through the generations? I think that's what it is, and I'm not going to look it up. I feel exquisite pleasure in dwelling on the recollections of childhood before misfortune had tainted my mind and changed its bright visions of extensive usefulness into gloomy and narrow reflections upon self. So good, we're going to get to the misfortune. Let's get there, Mary Shelley. Besides, in drawing the picture of my early days, I also record those events which led, by insensible steps, to my aftertale of misery. For when I would account to myself for the birth of that passion, which afterwards ruled my destiny, I find it arise like a mountain river from ignoble and almost forgotten sources. But swelling as it proceeded, it became the torrent which in its course has swept away all my hopes and joys. Natural philosophy is the genius That has regulated my fate. And natural philosophy has a little footnote. And while I'm tempted to just skip over it, I want to know why Uh, there is a footnote there. And so we shall look it up rather quickly if we can. Uh, The old term for physical science, especially physics. Okay, so just it is what we thought it was. Um, I desire, therefore, in this narration to state those facts which led to my predilection for that science. When I was 13 years of age, we all went on a party of pleasure to the baths near Thonon. T-H-O-N-O-N. Thonon? I don't know. The inclemency of the weather obliged us to remain a day confined to the inn. Okay, so here we have Clerval and the two Frankensteins. Uh, they, were out, they were off on like a little party. There's inclement weather. They're in the inn. This is exactly what happened with the two Shelleys and Byron. In this house, I chanced to find a volume of the works of Cornelius Agrippa. God damn it, another footnote, and I don't know who Cornelius Agrippa is. I'm so sorry. I'm so, you know what? If there's footnotes, this is part of the deal, guys. If there's footnotes, I, I, you know, I feel obligated to read them because I don't know who Cornelius Agrippa was. Magician and Kabbalist. Okay, a magician and Kabbalist. Got it. Um, I'm not going to look up what Kabbalist is, but I'm going to guess like a, like the Kabbalah, like the Jewish Kabbalah, like a mystic, basically. Um, I opened it with apathy. The theory which he attempts to demonstrate and the wonderful facts which he relates soon changed this feeling into enthusiasm. A new light seemed to dawn upon my mind. And bounding with joy, I communicated my discovery to my father. My father looked carelessly at the title page of my book and said, Ah, Cornelius Agrippa, my dear Victor, do not waste your time upon this. It is sad trash. If instead of this remark, my father had taken the pains to explain to me that the principles of Agrippa had been entirely exploded and that a modern system of science had been introduced which possessed much greater powers than the ancient, because the powers of the latter were chimerical, while those of the former were real and practical, under such circumstances I should have certainly thrown Agrippa aside and have contented my imagination, warmed as it was, by returning with greater ardor to my former studies." It is even possible that the train of my ideas would never have received the fatal impulse that led to my ruin. But the cursory glance my father had taken of my volume by no means assured me that he was acquainted with its contents, and I continued to read with the greatest avidity. So, what's Frankenstein doing? He's throwing his father under the bus. He's saying, it's my father's fault that I went down the road to ruin. If he had just said to me, Victor, come on, Agrippa. I mean, yeah, it's interesting, but look at, we're in the age of enlightenment. Look at the modern sciences. Look at all the proofs and formulas and everything else. Why are you bothering with this mysticism, with alchemy? You can't spin lead into gold, Victor, and here's why. But, but, I mean, here's the thing, and this is a little bit of, I feel like, um, what's the word I'm looking for? It's another problem with the writing. Victor's father has been nothing but benevolent, kind, right? He has showered him with affection. He's done nothing but earn his trust and love up in, for these first 13 years. And I get it. He's a teenager, and he might be a little rebellious now. But, like, his father said, hey, Victor, that's crap. Leave it alone. Like, why is Victor suddenly like? I'll prove you I'll prove you wrong, old man. I'm gonna read Agrippa, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna learn from him, and I'm gonna learn how to spin lead into gold. Like, it seems like there was no conflict up to this point between him and his father. Like, his father had never steered him wrong before. So, not why now suddenly is he putting on his leather jacket and being like, "Fuck you, old man. I'm gonna ride my motorcycle, and I'm, and, and you can't stop me." Like, what is that about? Like, there's just some inconsistencies of character, I feel like. And why is Victor so taken in with Agrippa? Like, Victor has devoted his first however many years, his first literate years to understanding the sciences, to understanding what he can of biology and geology and chemistry and physics and all the rest of it. But he reads one book about ESP, and suddenly he's like, ah, I've been red-pilled. Like, the rest of science, you know, was... Nothing but bullshit, and now the veil has been dropped. And I am going to follow Agrippa now. Why? It feels inconsistent in character. Like, what is it that has so taken him that he's willing to kind of cast aside, or at least burrow more deeply into these ancient ideas? Now, Agrippa is from the fourteen hundreds into the early fifteen hundreds, so you know it would be like me going, "Well, I am going to, I am going to follow." Uh, Jesus Christ, I can't think of anybody from that long ago. I'm going to follow Mary Shelley. Oh, well, shit, I am doing that. So I don't know. You know, it just, it feels it feels like there's some inconsistencies here. And they're kind of popping up here and there. And it makes me question the overall quality of the book. I'm not saying it's a bad book by any means. I'm into the story somewhat. It's a little bit boring at this point. I assume it's going to get more interesting. We're waiting for the fall. We're waiting for paradise to be lost. We know it's happening. We know it's coming. Okay. But if I have to judge this against, let's just say, for example, the only other book I've ever read, Jude the Obscure, um, I would say the writing, while easier to digest, isn't as good. The story has the potential to be a lot more compelling, but to this point, uh, you know, I would say similarly compelling to Jude the Obscure. And again, it's not a competition. And how do you judge Thomas Hardy writing the final novel of his career against Mary Shelley writing the first of hers, maybe the only, I don't even know if she wrote anything else. Um, But look, if we're going to put them both in the pantheon of classics, we kind of got to go apples to apples, right? We can't cut one some slack because she's younger and say, well, she was just 17. We just got to say, look, it's a classic, it's a classic. We got to measure them against each other. And again, it's not a competition, but it is, but it is. And I'm gonna treat it like such. It is a competition, let's be honest. Everything's a competition. So I'm gonna stop for now. I'm I'm stopping because my time is up. You know, I've got weeks in the bubble to ponder these things. Frankenstein is in the grip of Agrippa. Something is about to change for him. We've reached an inflection point for Victor Frankenstein. There, There he is with his friends, uh, stuck in an inn overnight. He picks up, you know, an old paperback the way you sometimes found. You find at these bed and breakfasts, you know, somebody left it there. And it's like, oh, I'll read this. You know, I'm bored at the inn. Let me, let me pick up Agrippa and and read how to spin lead into gold and ESP and, you know, astral projection and all the rest. And his dad's like, oh, that's garbage. You don't want to read that. And, you know, he's like, fuck you, old man. I'll read what I want. You can't tell me what to read. And his dad's like, whatever. Just go to bed at a reasonable hour, please. And take a shower. Um, so we're, you know, maybe we're at maximum paradise right here. Maybe we have crescendoed in terms of paradise. He's with his friends. He's with his family. Everything is good. He's sitting by the fire at the end. There's inclement weather, rain tip tapping outside. They can't go anywhere. So they're bundled up for the night. And he finds this book that is about to change his life. And he knows it leads to his ruin. And he blames his father. For a careless remark had his father only not made this careless remark He is blaming in a sense his creator. He is throwing his own God to the wolves and That is the through line of this thing That's one of the through lines is how we destroy gods and become God ourselves And that's what he's about to do. He's in the he's in the early process of doing it. He is this proto well, it's not even Proto-Freudian, right? It's, uh, it's uh, Odyssean? Wait, who's the guy that kills his father and sleeps with his mother? With his mother? Who's that? Who's that? I gotta look it up. Uh, Oedipus, excuse me. Oedipus. So it's like an Oedipal thing now. I don't think he's gonna sleep with his mother, but you know, you know what I mean. He's gonna kill his father. Metaphorically speaking, maybe literally, who knows? Anyway, what's gonna happen to Victor Frankenstein? What secrets will he find in Agrippa? What fantasy... Will he find that sets him on his journey of self-destruction? Find out next time on another bumbling and stumbling episode of Obscure Season 2, Frankenstein. But until then, I wish you adieu. Obscure Season 2, Frankenstein is produced by... Robin Lynn, Jennifer Brennan, Mary Shimkin, and myself here in the wilds of Connecticut, where I record, and elsewhere, original music by Craig Wedgren. If you enjoy this podcast, please go to Apple Podcasts and drop in some stars for us, why don't you? Write a kind review, why don't you? It helps. How does it help? I have no idea, but it makes me feel good.